Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is February the 17th, 2015. This is episode 1521 of the Survival Podcast. And what we're going to talk about today is how can you actually earn a living with permaculture, agriculture, restoration agriculture, sustainable ag, I don't care what it is, organic farming, that whole world. Can it actually be done? Can you actually make a living uh, in ways other than writing books, teaching courses, or let's say, oh, I don't know, having a thousand acres, which is something I was just challenged with, it's what it would take. Um, the answer is absolutely yes. And today I'm not really going to make a case that you can. I'm going to talk about how. Well, what the hell does it take? Because, I mean, there's a sob story uh, article going around right now that I won't even read. Because it's nothing but, a, it's like a mile-long sob story. When nobody told me about sustainable farming or organic farming, I don't even remember how. You can't make a living doing it. Well, some people can't. Uh, but there's some people that can't make a living, I don't know, selling insurance. And some people are very wealthy state farm agents. So what does it take to make a business successful, no matter what it is? And specifically, how does that apply to growing food, raising animals, or doing anything else in an ecological nature that we just happen to call permaculture many times? Before I get into that, let us go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle, you'll find it at sawtac.com. Nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho, veteran run and veteran operated. You know you're going to get it done right from Sawtooth. They have it all. Check them out today, sawtac.com. If it's tactical, they've got it. Next up today, bulkammo.com. That's one thing you I don't think you can get at Sawtooth Tactical is the ammo. You get all the other tactic cool stuff, but you need ammo. You know why you need ammo? You have a gun, you have no ammo, you have a very expensive club, or maybe a barter implement. But a gun without ammo is pretty much useless. It's pretty much useless. So get your ammo from Bulk Ammo, where I do. They have all the ammo calibers you're looking for. They got it in bulk. You'll find it at BulkAmmo.com. Remember, Sawtooth Tactical Bulk Ammo and many of our sponsors do discounts for you from the Members Support Brigade. And remember... There is a sale right now, your first year of MSB, or renewing if you've expired and you've been putting off renewing, 30 bucks. discount code is COLD, C-O-L-D, COLD, and you will get $20 off your first year of the Member Support Brigade, making it an even better deal than it already is. I do a discount for military personnel. If I were you and you were in the military right now, though, or law enforcement, Peace, Peace Corps, first responders, and you've been putting it off, you're thinking, I want to get the discount. Take the sale price. It's actually a little bit better. Cancel your renewal, and then next year you can go ahead and get the uh, the military discount if you want to. Uh, but right now it's just a better deal to take the discount from the sale with the discount code COLD. Let's go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, and you can sign up there. If you're going to use the form and pay by United States Postal Snail Mail, just write the code on there and adjust your price. If you're paying by silver, we just give you more time. Uh, with that, I'll skip over everything else and jump right into the year that was the episode. The year is 1521. I have Aztecs in the fall of Tenochtitlan, which I probably got wrong, even though Alex spelled it out phonetically for me. Martin Luther in the Diet of Worms. Magellan reaches the known world and dies. The Martin Luther segment and the Magellan segments are both really interesting and really pivotal, pivotal, pivotal things for the time in question for the year 1521, but I'm going to read the Aztec one in spite of the fact that I'll probably 
mispronounce the city again. I'm going to do my best. But it's just because we haven't really talked a lot about other places other than Europe and Asia. So with the Aztecs, we have a chance to talk about somewhere else. The Aztecs, known first, known from the first that Hernando Cortez and the conquistadors are not gods, inviting them into the city of Tenochtitlan was a ruse to size them up, but Cortez took Emperor Montezuma hostage, which angered the Aztecs. I guess you get pissed when somebody takes your emperor hostage. The emperor died as the conquistadors escaped the city. The emperor was replaced by his younger brother, but he died of smallpox, so he was replaced by a cousin. Emperor Descending Eagle. These rapid changes cause chaos in the chain of command. The Aztecs cannot work it out before Cortez returns with 2,000 conquistadors at his back. Tenochtitlan falls. An Emperor Descending Eagle is captured. The Emperor makes Cortez promise to protect his family. Cortez will arrange a marriage between the Emperor's 12-year-old daughter, Isabel, Christianized name, and a conquistador. She's already a two-time widow, and she will have several marriages before she becomes pregnant. At the age of 17, Cortez will be the father. Nice guy there, huh? Warning, all reports on Cortez should be taken with a grain of salt. If you want to think of him as the biggest butthead on the planet, I won't try to dissuade you. He has some de determined enemies, including his own wife, Catalina. Long story. I don't know, getting a 17-year-old native pregnant in the new world might be part of the problem with that. And that's my take on that. Anyway, by the next year, she will be dead. It really smells, but he will walk away unscathed. He will send several Aztecs back to Europe to expose the, new, the old world to the new world culture, including the wonders of the rubber ball in a game that looks like a combination of soccer and basketball. Cortez will introduce cattle ranching to Americas and slavery to the North American continent. He had focused on developing his lands. He might have done better with what he had, but like Christopher Columbus, he will neglect his administrative duties to seek adventure. Um, my take by this is just, I think you really have to understand the, 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 the corner that's being turned at this time in history. This middle 1500s period, um, you know, we think a lot about it was the 1600s, that we got into the colonizing of North America at a really high level uh, and, and what would eventually become the colonies of 13 and then these states united under the Constitution. But it was this early to mid-1500s where a real grasp and understanding of the fact that these two giant continents were here really started to hit home and um, the world changes in the 1500s. In, in many ways. There's also a lot going on with the, you know, we're heading into the Renaissance and stuff like that in some ways. Um, the Black Death is not gone, but the waves of death that came, you know, in the 1400s really aren't coming back in those numbers. Uh, the population of the planet is beginning to rebound. A lot of new technology is being developed. So there's a lot of things that happened in the 1500s that are pretty amazing for mankind. But the, the biggest you know, turning of a corner really is this whole concept of there's a whole other place out there that we don't really even understand yet. And many people throw their hat in the ring to try to control pieces of it. And it leads to wars and many other things. As I've said before, wherever government goes, death soon follows. Uh, some say that's a bit extremist, but yet no one's ever been able to successfully refute it when I've said it with any kind of a logical argument. And I've still got this challenge out there. I've got this challenge out there. If you 
were to list, and I've never done the work to find it out, but I mean, people that spring to mind would be Hitler, Tamerlane, etc. Um, the 100 largest mass murderers, and not the way we describe them in people like Henry Lee Lucas and, and whatnot, Otis Toole, etc., uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, not that way, but total body count. Who, who killed the most people in the world? I bet you, you couldn't make a list of a hundred and have one of them not be someone who, who actually was doing it quote unquote legally, at least under their own governance, uh, as a form of government. Uh, I don't, I've never seen that list. I'd love to see somebody assemble it. And it would be interesting to know how far down the list must you go before you get to someone that did it without government. My instinct is it might be somewhere in the 200s, but it's just a guess. Just a thought. If anybody ever wants to take on that project, I think it would be an incredibly enlightening article, an incredible case for minimizing government. Um, and I think you, you might find that not all of the people on the list would be, you know, uh, Hitler's and Tamerlane's. There might be some names you've never heard of. And there might be quite a few people from far more recent times than you would expect, other than some of the other big names, Stalin, etc. And if you made the list, would you give people like Franklin Roosevelt a pass? Or Winston Churchill a pass? And how would you add up the body count for them? And if you said, well, combat soldier deaths are not part of it, well, there was a lot of civilian deaths. There were a lot of civilian deaths under a lot of American and British bombs. So I don't think they get a pass. You might say they were acting in a, a, a method of self-defense. I don't know. I think if you added up the unnecessary actions, like Dresden, a firebombing of Tokyo, you might find they still make the list higher than you would expect. I'm just saying, where government goes, death follows. That doesn't mean no government. I mean, sh sh should have as little as possible. That's my view, anyway. Anyway, um, on a totally different note, today's show. Oh wait, we got to do the plan of the week. Bob Wells' plan of the week is Tuesday. So the Bob Wells' plan of the week, guys. I'm I'm psyched. I I I know most of these plants when they come in. I'm like, I knew about that plant. I was I either have it here or I'm going to get it. I did not know about this plant. And I want citrus. And I've played around with some stuff with citrus, and it just hasn't worked out. I didn't know this plant existed. The Bob Wells plant of the week is the Arctic Frost Satsuma. Now, if you actually live where Arctic Frost is, don't get super excited because it's not that Arctic. But for, 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 for something that is a, uh, a citrus, it's pretty Arctic. It is adaptable from zone 7 to 10. I am right here on the edge of 7-8, like 7B-8A, right? So I can grow this. It's cold hardy down to 10 degrees. Small spreading tree has white flowers with a sweet orange fragrance. In winter, it produces juicy, nearly seedless, and easy to peel fruit. It grows from 8 to 12 feet tall in the ground and 6 feet tall in a container. If you've been wanting to plant citrus in zone 7 and 8, then this is the cold-hardy variety for you. If you live above 7, you can grow it in a container. Find this plant more at BombWellsNursery.com. Wells Nursery specializes in anything edible, fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as the hard-to-find specialty trees. Anyways, I'm stoked. Um, I have a deal with Bob in order to do these where I have uh, some trees coming this year at basically half price. And uh, you can bet that they'll be putting quite a few of these into the basket for me. Um, this is kind of exciting for me to be able to grow citrus uh, outdoors in the ground. 
Uh, that's the way I prefer to grow anything. And those of you above Zone 7, say if you're in Zone 6, uh, since it's that hardy, you'd have to spend less time with it protected. So that's another good way to look at it. All right, now let's get into the main topic of today's show. So I had somebody today on the blog that, that, that basically, again, likened permaculture to a, a, a Ponzi scheme with PDCs. And I, I don't know where this is coming from, other than maybe some sort of frustration or an inability to grasp how a business in permaculture works. But I have never seen anyone sell a PDC this way. Come take my PDC and you two shall be blessed and you can go teach PDCs for $1,000 a head. Um, I've not seen it. If I did, I would call it out and I would, I would literally slaughter the source for selling it that way. That's not the way we sold the Perma Ethos PDC. Um, the reason we even chose to do a PDC for it is because it seemed like the best fit for the situation. We had people that wanted to support what we were doing. And a PDC is a good foundation in permaculture design, which many people aspire to have. Um, I think we did it for a very fair price. And I think that most people teaching it, if they're any good, are, are, are fairly pricing their PDCs. Uh, we will teach another one. Um, we have something coming that I, I can't really reveal yet with another PDC. There'll be an opportunity for people. And um, frankly, we're going to give it to everybody that took the first one for free. So um, it's not like we're trying to resell that over and over again just as a cash machine. But they do earn money. Now, when someone points something like that out, what they're saying is, well, you're, you're making money from this. Well, duh. Okay, In any business, if you have an opportunity that you can capitalize on and serve your clientele and make a profit and you don't do it, uh, it's dumb unless there was something that was a better fit for the resource. Okay, So of course we would sell that. Of course people want to buy it. Of course you can make money from it. And of course some people in permaculture make a significant portion of their revenue from teaching permaculture design courses. But most of those people are doing that simply for what I just said. There is a clientele that wants the product that's willing to pay for it. And what I think people don't understand is you can, you can now officially really put PDCs into two categories. Online and in person. And the online, I think actually in many ways can give you a better academic experience. But the ones that are in person, which are usually the ones that you're looking at, you know, $800 to $1,500 for. The people that criticize that number have no idea what it takes to do that. You know, I run a three-day workshop, which really turns into five days of, 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 of mayhem here on various aspects of uh, sustainability, survival, whatever. And the amount of work we do to serve, you know, anywhere between 25 and 35 people for that period of time is astronomical. One of the reasons I've never done a PDC on site here is that I, I, I can't see myself doing that for two weeks. I can't, I can't see it. I can't see asking my wife to deal with basically being a full-time caterer working from about six o'clock in the morning till about nine to ten o'clock at night every day for two weeks. And those of you that have been here know full well that when we're doing those type of events, by like eight o'clock, I'm telling her, put the stuff down. It's good enough. Right? So, and our help, it's the same way. It's like, guys, you're done. You're done for the day. And they're, you know, they're getting ready for tomorrow because they have so much going. So you can't put that 
price down unless you have some idea what it takes to deliver that. A PDC done that way is not just about the teaching. It's about the total experience. It's about the food, the bonding, the groups, the, the, whether it's at a hotel or it's a campout experience. It's, it's an incredible life-changing experience. In some ways, it can give you some things that an online version can't. Okay, And that's, that's part of what that whole experience is. It takes a lot of work to deliver. So when someone criticizes the cost, it's usually someone that has no idea of what it takes to do it. Um, now, that said, you can be, if you're smart about it and you put enough size into a class, you can be profitable with them. You know, you can, you can run a class that you, you, you bill $25,000 for in total. And out of that, you can probably make 15 to 20 in profit, depending on how you treat people. You know, if you're feeding them brisket, it's a little harder than if you're feeding them tabbouleh. But the critique in its core that trying to make your business unit based on PDCs is, 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 is inherently limited because there's only so many people that want to take one, that can afford to take one, that are going to go somewhere and take one, and there's only so many teachers that can compete for that business, I think is somewhat valid. I think it's somewhat valid. And the key is, though, that's not, like, that's not the only thing a permaculture business does. And I think that one of the things I want to clear up before we go forward today is I don't care if you call it permaculture. I only care if it is. In fact, I'm going to tell you today, at certain points, I probably wouldn't call it permaculture in, in certain instances, at least not at the top line. See, there's a, there's a rule in marketing. And unfortunately, many people that take PDCs and take other courses and go out and decide, I'm going to go in business consulting, or I'm going to go in business in, in, in the development side or whatever, or the, the, the writing side or whatever, don't understand. And that is, you never use a word in your top-line marketing that your market doesn't instantly understand. If you are interested in building a business, I don't care if you want to make widgets or permaculture apples or anything else in the world, you should write that down and commit it to memory to where you can't forget it. When you're marketing, you never use a single word in your top-line marketing that your market doesn't instantly understand. So this is why I think a lot of people should take permaculture out of their top line marketing. It's why we do as well. If you go to Nine Mile Farm, you will find the word permaculture. You will not find it in any headlines. Okay, If you go to ninemile.farm, you will not see a, a bold headline that says permaculture eggs. You see non-soy, non-GMO, pastured eggs. Or something to that effect that we have there. Why? Everybody understands that. There's no soy. There's no genetically modified organisms. These birds are on pasture and not confined. And they're eggs. The market gets that. We sell to people that don't have any idea what permaculture is. Now, it's an opportunity to sell other products to them. And it's an opportunity to expose them to the concept of permaculture, which once you've engaged with them, they will be highly receptible to. But we don't sell it as permaculture. And some of the most successful people out there like, oh, I don't know, Joel Salatin didn't use the word permaculture until he figured out, well, oh, that's what I'm doing? And people buy books if I put that on there? Oh, hell, I'll put that on there. Right? After he got, after he got paid to do a couple big speaking engagements, so all these people show up, 
decided, oh yeah, I like that word now. But it really, it took a long time for him to ever even use the word. Long after permaculturists were going, this guy's got it, before he even said the word himself. And as most people on the outside of permaculture, you look at it and you see something like whatever Jeff's doing, Jeff Lawton, and you go, oh, it swells. I don't do swells. I'm not permaculture. Well, that's a technique. That's like looking at a house that's, that's made out of brick. And you're an architect that designs houses. But you go, I don't use bricks, so I'm not an architect. It's the same thing. It's because you don't understand what architect means. Or you go, of course I'm an architect. I just prefer to build buildings out of steel. Or what, or concrete. Or ICFs. Or whatever. Okay? So that we have to understand that maybe the word is the problem for some people. That we don't maybe be needing to use the word. But I want to tell you about some people that are successful with what I consider permaculture businesses that don't teach PDCs, and some of them probably never had one. One's a guy named Luke Callahan. I recently put him into the MSB for you guys. He has a book called Make a $1,000 a Week Selling Microgreens. You can get it for half off if you're a member. Why can he tell you that you can make a $1,000 a week selling microgreens? Well, because not only did he do it, he did double that. He was, he was selling about two, actually profiting about $2,000 a week when he had his microgreens greens business running at the height. He's, he's since decided to move on and do other things with his life, but he's proven the concept. Now, he doesn't need a thousand acres because he's, he was growing them in a basement under lights, selling them to chefs and at farmers markets. That's a hundred grand a year, folks. That's a hundred grand a year. It's possible. There's another guy who's been on this show, and his name is Steven Sobakayak, and he's not trying to make a living off of PDCs. He's got about 20 acres of his, I think it's 18, actually, that's been rehab permaculture style. Yes, he made a DVD about it again because people wanted to know. But that business is up and running. He's got a membership program. People people call him and they're like, I want to buy some of those chickens you guys are selling. Uh, you can get on the list and maybe get in the next year. Oh, you mean next year? No, I mean the next year. Like this is 2015. I'm already full for 2016. Maybe you can get in in 2017 if somebody drops out. Well, what if somebody drops out next year? I got a list so long, it's not. it won't matter. I'll never get to you. Okay? He's in Canada. Oh, it's only for the tropics. He's in Canada. Another Canadian, Jean-Martin Fortier, established a micro-farm based on permaculture principles. He not only earns a living, but he employs several people doing basically French-style bio-intensive farming. Well, that's as permaculture as it gets, folks. I don't care what he calls it. Curtis Stone makes a living spin farming. Spin farming is where you go around in neighborhoods, you find backyards where nothing's going on, you talk to the homeowner, say, here's the deal, I'll put in beds, I'll grow food in your backyard, you get a portion of it, I take the rest and sell it. Now, he does teach people how to do that now for money, but you know why? Because he did it first and made money doing it. He doesn't even own any land that he's farming. And he got up to four acres and realized he could make as much money doing an acre and a half-ish as he could with four, by focusing on the best money-producing plants. And because as he got much larger, he had to start employing more and more people. And he referred to scale back and say, look, here's how you can do it. You go get some land. This is all I need. But he hustled and he worked hard. That's a permaculture business. 
You're actually producing sustainable crops from the backyards of suburbanites with spin farming. Tell me how that's not permaculture. Michael Jordan makes a good income just from bees. Just from bees. Uh, and these at least are names you know, but many of them you know because of Diego Footer or me. They're not super big names. These aren't Joel Salatins and, and Seb Holzers. But at least, I mean, you've heard of their names. How about this? these people, though? Henrietta Creek Apple Orchard. Henrietta Creek Apple Orchard. Who are these people? These folks live about, oh, really 15 miles from me as the crow flies. But by the time I drive there, it's about 35 miles. They have a pick-your-own orchard. They also do produce and some nuts and everything. But they specialize in apples and peaches. Um, they're in Roanoke, Texas. Pretty dry climate. Challenging environment. Very similar to what I have. They make a good living. They probably don't know what PDC means from the little bit of conversation I have with them. They probably don't know. I'm waiting for everything to start butting up. I'm going to go up there with a video camera, and I'm going to show you what these guys are doing if they'll have me. What they're doing is permaculture. They don't even know the word. You don't know who they are. But they have a great local market established. They don't even have a real website. They have a Facebook page. When, when people t say, can you make a living, it's, do you know how to make a living? So, I want to start out today with, first, it isn't if you can do it. Because there's too many damn people doing it to even ask that stupid question. It would be like asking, well, can people really walk? Well, there goes one down the road doing it now. I guess that that's yes. All right? But how you must do it if you're going to be successful. First, I think you have to focus on something that's a core product or service. It may not long-term be the most profitable thing you do, but there has to be a core product. This is why people, by the way, that are good teachers should consider making educational products their core product because it plays to their strength. There's people that know permaculture design or sustainable agriculture better than anybody else in the world. Okay? really are. Oh, let me throw one more in there for somebody making money using permaculture that doesn't really like to use the word themselves, that doesn't own that much land. Craig Judy in Missouri, grazing cattle. Most of the cattle he's grazing are not on his own pieces of property. So there's just another example of you don't need to own a thousand acres free and clear to be able to make a living. But you do have to focus on something core. And that's why I would never come down on someone if they're a gifted teacher for saying the main thing I do is teach PDCs. Well, if you can hold students' attention for a 72-hour PDC, and by the time they get to Chapter 14, Alternatives for a, for a Global Nation, okay, that they're still interested in you, you should be doing that because very few people in the business can. Very few people are that engaging. I've listened to a lot of permaculture teachers with teacher and quote marks, and after five minutes I'm like, I don't want to listen to this anymore. I don't even care if they're right about what they're teaching me. I don't even care if they know things I don't. I This person's not engaging. So if you can get up in front of a room of 20 people or 50 people and you can talk in a way that they feel like they're connected to you and you can make them excited about learning, why wouldn't you focus your core on education? It's what you're good at. But if it's not what you're good at or it's not what you want to do, 
then you need to find a core where you can be competent and where you can build the hub of a wheel. And once that hub is built, then you can start putting some spokes on it. When you get about four spokes on it, it'll support its weight, and it can start turning and carrying something somewhere. And you can add as many spokes as you want after that, as long as you keep everything in balance, just like a wheel. So here at nonmile.farm, which is our little farmstead, we are not making a fortune. Okay, we're not. We're pretty much at this point kind of sort of paying for the feed. But it's an establishment plan with ducks. And now we have the template. We have it scalable. We know exactly what we can make. We know exactly how it works. We have more customers than we can serve. We can turn this by the, by, by the end of this summer into a business that produces about a thousand dollars net profit a month. Just little ducks. Just little ducks. I don't know that we'll go that big. We're happy to make six, seven hundred bucks in profit. It's extra money for us. And it's about developing the entire system. But it's still a core. And so the way we got there is we looked at, at the concept of universality. What is something everybody wants? Well, there's nothing everybody wants. Okay, what's something lots of people want? Eggs. What's something lots of people want that we can produce is maybe a better question. So eggs. So we start with chickens, we end up with ducks. We find there's a niche market there. We find it's a premium market. We find that people can't find it anywhere else. Okay, baby, we're going to go with that. And then we start developing the farm to be a place that utilizes the ducks to their highest capacity. Without See, now, <laughs> that is a permaculture design concept. You have an element, and the element needs to be harnessed so that its, its behaviors, its intrinsic characteristics, its inputs, and its outputs are balanced with the whole system. Gee, whole system design. Who said that? I think Ben Falk did. Okay? Now, the thing is, I could have figured all this out, perhaps without a PDC. And many people do. But there would be a lot of elements that I would miss. There would be a lot of fiefdom type things, as Joel Salton talks about, that I might miss without it. But it's that thinking that's led us there. But this is a core product. The next thing is develop a market that's as local as possible. If you want a business that's sustainable, you want as many of your customers as close to you as possible so it's convenient to do business with you. Now, there's there's exceptions there. If you look at Cuffle Creek, another guy that I would hold up as an example of a permaculture-style system He ha he's growing just you know hundreds of apple varieties, determining the best for his climate type, and selling them all around the world. Okay, but the core of his business is right out his back door. Got it? And then so to maximize the ability to ship, he's gone to a very specific model of what's called bench grafting, grafting a one-inch piece onto a rootstock so you can ship a hundred trees in a box. Do you never think a hundred trees would fit in? But by his customers, end of the customers, you know, first year with those trees, they're bigger than if, if you had bought them as one year trees at, at a, uh, a box store, right? Say at, at three years, they've surpassed that, that, that tree from the box store. So he's figured out how to develop the external market with an internal focus on development and labor. And I bet you he sells trees locally. And it's probably how he got started. 
So as you develop a brand, you can reach out beyond that local market, but it depends on the product, how it takes to ship it, how much competition there is, who you're competing with. And a lot of times it doesn't apply to food, but it does apply to plants. So that might lead you toward the nursery plant propagation side of things. Because I can send you a hundred goji, you know, in a, in a flat rate box for eight bucks. So you, you start with that local market, but understand that one has some but ifs to it. And the but ifs are all about the core product. The next thing, don't try to do too many things too fast. Stick with the core until you have a customer base and then develop the peripheral spokes. So a lot of people look at like this crybaby uh, article this, this girl wrote. I say, well, there's all these other things you could be doing. And I'm like, well, yeah, and that might help. But the reality is if you don't know how to market, right, and this person doesn't really know how to market, they don't know how to grow. It's like all these failures of their crops. So you're growing the wrong things. You're growing stuff that doesn't grow well in your area. You bought water with you, you bought land without good access to water. That's dumb. I can't help you, right? You, you you haven't developed systems that will work in that environment. So you made the mistake with the land and the first, so there's so many things that are wrong there. But if if you are to fix that little farm, then first you have to develop a core, and you have to develop a core market. You have to do a good job of marketing that. And then you can you can put peripherals onto it. And you can go very fast with peripherals. Because once you have a core market, let's say you have 50, 100 regular customers, and you're thinking, I either do A or B. You talk to your customers and go, we're thinking about doing A. Well, we'd buy that. We're thinking about doing B, too. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. They, they, if they like it, but they don't say we'd buy it, that means they don't really like it and they don't want to hurt your feelings. So you follow these rules and then be honest with yourself about time and money. How much money do you have to invest? How long can you go before you need to be making a freaking profit? And how much time are you going to have? Choosing the core product a lot of time is a function of the time. I would tell you trying to grow a conventional garden while working a full-time job and building it to a market garden size is probably not going to work. I'm not going to say it's not going to work, because then someone will do it and prove me wrong, because anybody can do anything they really want to do within reason. If you want to jump off of the Empire Stale Building and fly with no uh, no apparatus, just by flapping your arms, yeah, you probably can't do that. But this is nowhere near to that level. But I'd say that it would be difficult. Very labor-intensive operation. You know, if you want to do... Pastured poultry, I think you can, but you better start small and you better get very, very good at systematizing it. So that if you have to be at your job by 8 and you work till 5, you're up at 5 o'clock in the morning and by 7 when you're leaving for work, everything's done for the day, you don't have to worry about anything, everything's taken care of. And then you better find something like a USDA processor to process that poultry because you ain't going to have time and you just absorb that as an expense into the business and you focus on making the animals healthy, the product good, and developing the market. And then that's your core. If it's going to be pastured poultry, that's your core. You're not doing anything else the first year. You might do other things, but you're not doing it for profit. All you're trying to do is get to the end of that year You've sold a few hundred birds, you've made a few thousand dollars, now you have inputs, outputs, you have ratios, you have times, now you can scale. You have a customer base. 
You have to be honest with yourself. If you say, I have enough time to do that, or I'm willing to get up at 4.30 every morning and do what needs to be done. Are you really? Will you be willing to do it three weeks into it when your wife goes, all you do is work? Do you want that stress? Are you willing to work through that period of time and say, honey, it's just the way it's going to be till I get this done, until I get this established? Or do you want to find a, a softer path for that part-time easement in? Are you in a situation where one partner can work full-time and the other can build a business full-time? It's ideal if you can do it. Does the person that has the ability to, to, to go full-time in that side of things actually want to do it, though? Often, unfortunately, you're flipped around. The person that really wants to do it is the one that's the main breadwinner can't really pull it off. How, if you're going to do that, how long is it going to take? You have to be honest about everything. Everything. And once you do that, then you can start examining what are some ways. So let, me, let me go through some ways you can make a living doing this, whether it be a part-time income, a part-time income that transitions to full-time, or something you can take to full-time as quick as possible. I think the, the, the number one thing you can do in limited space with limited time is the nursery business. Because it's, it's something that you can work bursty, and it's something that you can sell the majority of your product two times a year, spring and fall. And it's something that a lot of the time in between, you're not really doing much. So you can just say, I'm going to have to commit my ass off during these periods of time, and I'm going to have to keep my ass off with some marketing and a ramp-up period to both of those periods. But you can automate things like misting and irrigation and, and, and vents on greenhouses and stuff. And you can be at work while your plants grow, while your rootings take root. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying you don't have to work hard. I'm not saying there's a lot of, a lot of time that has to go into developing it. But I am saying it is the type of thing that it doesn't really matter what time of day you're grafting. It's just that you're grafting. You, you, can, you can put the kids to bed at 8 o'clock and go out in the shed and bench graft for two hours before bed instead of watching TV. Where it, it's kind of hard to harvest lettuce at 10 o'clock at night. So the plant propagation thing, I think, has so many permeations. There's so many things. Like today's plant of the week, the Arctic, what was it, the Arctic Blast? Well, Arctic, Arctic uh, Frost, Satsuma. I didn't know that plant existed. Is that it's, I don't know if it's a patented or trademark variety, but I know this. If you were producing that and selling it into a market that, that, that thought they couldn't grow citrus, that'd be a great plant to produce. Do I think you could, you could have a business just on that? Probably not. But it's a great core product. And there's a rule, there's so many rules in business. And, and part of my problem, I think, is when I talk to you guys about it, I talk as a business person who spent most of my life talking to business people that know the rules of business. So there's a lot of things that you tend to maybe not assume, but it's assumative in your, in your language that people would know these things. So one of the main rules of business is the, the hardest transaction to gain from any individual is the first one. The first one. Once you buy from me, it is very easy for me to sell to you again if you have a good experience and I have anything else you want or are willing to buy. So that's part of the core product thing. It's also part of the unique product thing. What can I use to entice you to engage with me? Once I do that, then I can actually find out from you what you want and make it for you, produce it for you, provide it to you, or refer you to somebody else who does that. Who then might say, you know what, it's really nice that the duck guy down the road 
told this guy that we make whatever the hell we make. I'm going to let people know that he has these cool duck eggs because he sent me business. That's called referral business, but it's a B2B referral. Business to business referral. So most people understand referral business in that I do a good job. You come to my house, I sell you some duck eggs. These duck eggs are great. You tell your Aunt Sue. Your Aunt Sue's like, I'll have some duck eggs. You're like, here, try two of his duck eggs. And she's like, I'm going to go there. Or she says, hey, next time you're there, get, get an extra dozen for me every time you go. Okay, that's the referral business most people are aware of. That's the referral business that people think of when it comes to um, like social media and what have you. But the reality is when someone goes to a place that they do business with regularly that has their trust and they say, hey, oh, you were looking for that. Here's where you would get it. The inherent trust there is huge. They actually trust that person more than they trust their Aunt Sue. Because they have a totally different relationship. It's, like it's not a family relationship. It's not a friend's relationship. It's a professional relationship. And it's a professional referral. The nursery business takes up an awful lot of opportunity for that. What if you started producing? What if you went out and found all the small nurseries? They're just a little bit bigger than you. All the places with 10 high tunnels and stuff like that. And you walk through all of them. And you said, uh, I notice you don't have any fill-in-the-blank plants here. Um, what would you, would you be interested this Saturday? I'll bring you 10 on consignment. Uh, this is what they should sell for retail. This is what I want wholesale. And, uh, if they sell, you pay me. And if they don't sell, I'll take them back. They'll just bring you 10. And, and I'm going to bring a little sign to put with them to explain what they are. Uh, how's that? Uh, most people would say, uh, okay, yeah, I got some space right there. Put them right there. Now, you're leaving them with a nurseryman who has to, like, water his crap every day and everything, so it's going to take taken care of. So they're not going to be dead. I see if you, if you go to Lowe's and Home Depot and Walmart, half the shit's dead at the end of the season. These small business people don't do that crap. They can't afford to. They're not dealing with giant corporations like Bonnie's where they get their money back for everything that dies. So they have systems in place to take care of the plant. So if they don't move there, then you take them somewhere else. But what if you could just get ten of those types of businesses? handling two or three plants that you produce that they don't have time to jack with. All of a sudden, you've got a core for your nursery business. Is that how you should build your core for your nursery business? I don't know. Do those types of businesses exist around you? Can you find them? Can you locate them? Are you good at talking to them? Maybe, maybe not. You have to find your own core. But that's an example of a core. Another one would be pick your own orchards. That's what this Henrietta Creek apple orchard is. Um, they have a pick your own system. They have rows that are straight. They have the trees grouped. So they can say, right now, the Dorset Goldens are in. Go here. This is where you pick your stuff. Okay? It's still permaculture. It's a polyculture. It's naturally grown. It's integrated with other plantings. It's not to the level of soba kayak stuff up in Canada, but it's been there for over 25 years. They, they, they we, there was nowhere near the the, the uh, understanding of permaculture design that there is today in the world. When these guys went, I mean, 25 years ago is a while back, guys. Okay, some of you that listen to the show weren't born yet. So. But that's another example of a business you can build. My wife talks about doing it here. I'm not so sure because I have a different type of system put in. 
We have a, like this extensively polycultured system with stuff broken up all over. And I don't know how I actually feel about people going in there and pulling stuff off my trees without supervision. And the whole point of Pick Your Own is to be able to show this is how you pick an apple, this is where you go pick the apples, and you don't have to do anything anymore. But we may allow some customers to come out with us and pick some of their own as part of an experience. But we're combining the massive multifunctional design with plant propagation. So like I said, I just talked to the guy from Cuffle Creek today, and I'm ordering just from him 20 different cider apple varieties. Well, in a few years, I'll know every one of them that's really good for cider here. And I'll have a whole bunch of trees that ain't so good that I can cut off and graft the good onto the bad and produce more. And every year I can get buttloads of scion. And I can make as many of those plants as I want and sell them to as many people around here as I want, including to the entire craft cider industry trying to get a foothold in Texas. They can't get trees. that are ordering trees in 2017 right now because they can't get them. Now, will that turn into a major profit center? I don't know. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know. I'm doing it because it's interesting to me. But I have a core. My core is podcasting. That's okay. The so Survival Podcast, whether you want to admit it or not, is a permaculture business. I've talked about it before. I don't have time to go into it today. But this, is, this whole business I build is built on permaculture design principles. Return of surplus, care of the people that are in the audience... And I don't do anything that hurts planet Earth with my podcast. And I'm taking responsibility for myself and that of my children. My business is based on eight forms of capital that come straight out of permaculture teachings. It's based on a tribal mindset that follows the concepts of a new global nation. TSP is its own nation. It's permaculture. So I stick to my core. These are the spokes. And they're also because I want you to know how to do it. It would be very easy for me to just grow all my crap and eat all my food and give away all my surplus to local food banks and not give a damn. I want other people doing it. That's why I do it the way that I do it, expose people to it. The microgreens business. Now, do I think 10,000 people can start a microgreens business tomorrow? No, I think you'd saturate the market. I really do. Do you know the good news? Probably one person's going to start one tomorrow, and it's probably not in your backyard. And there's so much opportunity there. So much opportunity in the microgreens business. Chefs at these high-end restaurants that use microgreens are having them shipped, packed in dry ice from halfway across the country. The fact that they can order, you, you know, I need one pound of this, two pounds of that, three pounds of that Friday from you, and you can show up with it fresh to them, huge to them. Huge. And this is stuff that sells, you know, by the ounce. It's almost like you're selling pot. So I don't have a lot of knowledge of the microgreens industry other than from listening to Luke Callahan's um, podcast. So giving you a core there is basically me lifting his material. I just want to be honest about that. But it's chefs. And it's probably sushi chefs. And it's selling things like Seashow. It's very, very expensive. But he also did a lot of business at farmer's markets. And here's the interesting thing about what he did. So he's going to these farmer markets, and he has these clamshells, which are like the, the clear cases that you get food at at the grocery store. And he has a certain amount in them, and I think he was selling them for like, I don't know, six bucks. 
And that was like the, that's the portions he had them, and they were six bucks. And I could have the number wrong. It could have been four bucks, whatever. But it was a certain dollar figure. And everybody that comes by in a farmer's market wants to talk to you. They don't know what a microgreen is. You have to explain it. They're looking at everything else. They're starry-eyed. And he starts to realize that rule of business that I gave you earlier. The first purchase is the hardest one. And that people that will spend six bucks on a, a bunch of microgreens will probably spend ten, twelve bucks. So all he did, you got to understand this to understand the brilliance of it. All he did was double the size of his packaging and charge more. And it pretty much doubled his revenue from the same amount of farmer's markets to the same amount of customers, and he lost nowhere near enough people from, oh, that's too expensive, to not do it. That's the microgreens business. That's something that could be a core. Eggs. you got to be smart about eggs. You, you've got to be smart about eggs. You've got to price them high enough to make them profitable. Uh, when we first started selling, people looked at our pricing and went, well, that's kind of low. Well, you know what? Let me give you another lesson. You can always raise your price. It's a lie that you can't. It's bullshit, and you should raise your price. When you figure out that people think your product's worth more than you think it is, or, the, or they're willing to pay more than you're currently selling it for. Um, what we wanted to do was get engaged with people very, very quickly. We wanted nothing to get in the way, so we priced high enough that nobody thought our product was crap. We priced the same price as everybody else selling on Craigslist, and we looked a lot better. We put in a nice website, we explained our story, we marketed our product a little tiny bit. People showed up, and we understood immediately the value we represented, and we jacked the price up. And you know how many people bitched? None. And you know what I would have told the people that bitched? Go to Kroger's. So one, you have to price your, your product high enough. And two, you have to understand that a little bitty bird takes a long time before it starts making eggs. And you have to find your market out, and you have to figure it out, and you have to decide what's going to sell best in your market. So I don't have any interest in doing chickens anymore. That doesn't mean you shouldn't. Is there? A, I just sold 10 birds to a guy up in McKinney, just the other side of the Metroplex from me, said, I can't get enough chickens that are of laying age right now. I'm getting $6 a dozen for eggs. And he's, he's a retired military guy. He's in a perfect position. He, he could pay his basic bills. So anyway, this guy that bought these eggs, he says to me when he leaves that night, look, uh, when you're ready to sell more, let me know, because I got a buddy down the road from me. He's selling eggs, too. And uh, between the two of us, we could probably take all the birds you have off your hands. So there's a guy not that far away. I mean, it's, it's, it's like an hour and a half drive, because it's a nightmare of the giant cities in between us. But in, in the end, it's, it's not that far. It's the same major market. And he's doing just fine with chicken eggs. And he's selling them for more than me. And he can't keep up. But he's developed a different market in a different area in a different segment. Whereas here, everywhere you turn around, there's farm fresh eggs available. We just bought uh, some tamales from a guy, a really cool store. Sells like 40 different flavors of tamales. I didn't know there was such a thing. Uh, and he's got just tons of eggs available for less than I could ever sell them because he's selling in large quantities. And I said, you sell a lot of eggs? He goes, oh, yeah. So, I mean, so I'm competing with that, and the gentleman up in McKinney's not, apparently. So he's more in Yuppieville. I'm more in Ruralville. So I go with ducks. And I got people driving 45 minutes an hour to buy a couple dozen duck eggs. You think they care when I raise the price from 6 to $7? Do you really? They don't. 
Now, here's where you get smart with so say you have to be smart about duck eggs. Now, can I get that person to drive here to buy plants for me? No, probably not. Probably don't want to. I could sell them plants while they're here getting duck eggs. See, I've created a core product that pulls people in to allow for peripheral sales that may not otherwise be willing to drive out to get that other peripheral product. It might be like, I, I don't really, I'd like one of those, but God, it's all the way up there. But we create a relationship. People come here, we show them around. They get to see the farm. They get to see the animals. They bring their kids. Selling them a Golgi plant is not very hard at that point. 20 bucks from a rooted cutting. Got very little effort into it. That's being smart with a core product. Um, you could also build a business acting as a sales aggregator. You're just gonna, if you want to sell a product at a premium, you're gonna have to find the people that are doing things your way. So what I have to do today, almost as soon as I get off the the, the air with you guys, I got to call my partner Neil about Gen Ford and talk about that. We're about to bring out the the full version of Gen Ford for you guys that backed us. We really appreciate that. Then Dorothy and I have to jump in a truck. And we have to drive about 15 miles north of here to pick up six Muscovy ducks because the people we bought our last ducks from are willing to sell some more at this point. By the way, they're making money selling ducks. Just saying. Uh, they're, I wouldn't call them a permaculture business, though, because they're feeding their birds conventional feed. Now, when I talked to them, I told them the business, like, they said, why do you want this many and why are you you know constantly wanting more and you won't leave me alone and you only want hens and you take one drake to six females what, what's up and i said listen uh, i have customers that are buying duck eggs and i can't keep up and i don't want to lose them i don't want to lose the opportunity but what about this what if i send you my customers in surplus because they have all these eggs that they're like feeding their dogs they're not you know throwing out and they don't want them and, they, and and they're like well no we don't really want to okay well, Dorothy says, why don't you make a deal with them? We'll go up there once a week, pick up all their eggs, pay them, you know, half what we get for them, and, uh, and, and sell them. And I'm like, can't do it. She's like, why? I'm like, because they're feeding conventional feed. I don't really like the setup that they have, and I won't put my brand on their product. I, I, I will not put my brand on their product. I'll buy their birds, bring them here, put them into my system, take care of them my way, and then I'll put my brand on it. So that would be an example of, I've found people with ducks, the ducks lay eggs, they don't really want the eggs, they don't put that much value in the eggs, I could buy the eggs from them, I could be selling those eggs, but I get into a, I, first of all, I have to get a license to sell that, it becomes a whole different level of government involvement, but okay, let's say we could do that, but it's not, it's not my product in quality. And I'd be happy to refer them customers and say, until we have more, when you can't get them, these folks have some too. But I'm not willing to aggregate their product. So that doesn't mean you couldn't find people that you could aggregate product for. What if you, here, you know, when you just start thinking, all of a sudden, all these kinds of ideas start coming into your head. Most places in, in our country, you can see in the backyards a little bit to see if there's a garden back there. What if you knocked on every door of every place that you already... What if we did, we called this like inverse spin farming, right? 
Okay? So spin farming is I go, I find a yard with nothing in it, and I offer to put something in it, and I give you the surplus, I give you some of it, and I take the surplus to sell. What if I found all the really good gardeners out there, really great gardeners out there, and said, hey, I got an idea. What do you grow? And they tell me, okay, do you produce, most good gardeners produce way more than they can use, and they give some, would you be interested in selling your surplus? Most of them would be probably like, well, maybe, yeah, we'll have to do. Oh, I come here and buy it. And if I can develop markets off of that, the person that's already doing it, what if I said, you know what, um, you have, what, four beds there? Yeah. Would you would you put in three more beds if I paid for everything and, and take care of them and produce this group of plants for me? And I'll buy all you can produce for this price? And I'm telling you the price before they go on the ground? And they said, Yeah. Baby, I'm putting beds in. I'd call that inverse spin farming. Find the people that are already doing it, get them to expand their operation, sign a contract with them in return for paying for the materials. If you do not continue to produce on these beds for two years, let's say, after they're installed, I get the cost of materials back from you. Or what have you. You know? And, and so that way you're, you're, you're mitigating your risk and let other people do the farming. But you ask them, like, what do you do? You use chemicals and stuff like that? You do? Okay. Would you be interested in converting? No. Okay. We can't do that. Bye. How many people do you have to find like that? How many people? And, and, and this is a business that's bet. Let's let's be honest. That business is much better in a major market, you know, place where there's restaurants and stuff like that, farmers markets and what have you. But. Because, you know, as that's, you start figuring out how much you got, and you start developing a market for home for homegrown, locally produced produce. And if people are cool, you could have a website. These are all our growers right here on our website. This is where all the food comes from. Some of these people might live right down the road from you. Now, some people might not want their addresses, but you could, you could still, you could absolutely protect people's identity and catalog, like, the lawn, the size, what's grown there, and the general vicinity, right? And some people will be like, hey, put me on there. I don't care. That's that's an incomplete idea, but that's another way to act as a sales aggregator. You could also find your best um, producers at your farmer's market and then create wholesale agreements with them outside of the farmer's market. There's a lot of ways that you could create kind of this middleman approach, it's not something I would personally want to do, but I don't know this inverse spin farming idea. I have a have a real I you know I think that's a whole new idea waiting to happen now. Um, the other thing you could do, let's say you were like me and you had a piece of property, a few acres or more, and you're doing all this stuff, your swales and your ponds and everything, and your animals, and you're just building this beautiful property. What would be wrong with putting in three or four tiny houses, if you want to call them that? setting them up really nice and saying these are vacation properties that rent for $400 a week. I mean, there's a cash flow there, isn't there? There's almost no real expense if you do it slowly over time, pay for them as you go, pay-go operation, and when nobody's in there, you just shut the power off to the place. It's not costing you anything while it's sitting there. Now, there's a whole different type of business there. There's all different challenges there. 
But is that a permaculture business? Oh, I don't know. You come here and you get to experience all this. These are different seasons. This is what's going on. These are animals you get to interact with. These are the local attractions. You're going to get the eco-centered tourist to something like that. So if you reached out to like, okay, there's a winery here. They do tastings at this period of time. And you talk to them and said, well, when my customers come in, is there anything additional you could do to generate the repeat businesses out of my customers? Oh, when you go here and you take their tasting and you buy two bottles of wine, they give you one of your choice for free or whatever you come up with. And you start telling that story on your website. This is one of the things that we do, right? There's a local nature center and there's walk, interpretive walks that are done at this time every Saturday. Let me know. I'll have it set up for you. Whatever. I mean, you see, so the hub is the, is the, is the rental vacation style property. And the spoke is reaching out to the other businesses. And now you're not having to sell any food product at all. And maybe you say, while you're here, eat what you want off my trees. Just ask what's in season before you do. I don't know. It's however you want to do it. I mean, I don't want that. I don't want to deal with people that much. But some people love to meet new people every day. It's a great business form. Um... As we move into animals, I think poultry and pork are your two quickest return, best investments for production, and I think either one can be a core product. I think pigs in some ways are more work, but I think they can be more profitable. And there's a lot of different ways you can do them. And I'll try to find the video today of Joel Salton explaining how on a piece of leased land that he leased for, I think, a couple thousand dollars and a few thousand dollars of infrastructure on 40 acres, they made like $60,000 on pork in one season. And all of the infrastructure that they put in, all the money they spent on the infrastructure, if they lost the lease in a day, could all be pulled out of the ground, thrown in the back of a couple pickup trucks, and go somewhere else. I'll try to find that video for you. But I think if you're going to do pork and poultry, you either have to be in a position where you can pretty much do it as a full-time venture, You really have to market the product, not just grow the product. And I also think that you you need to really learn the trade. And I think it might make sense in that instance to learn the trade very small scale. Joel Salatin still says one of the best ways to get started, raise 100 boil, broilers, process them yourself, put 50 in your freezer, and give 50 away. Just do that your first season. And your season with that type of poultry is eight to ten weeks. It's not even a full year. And then of the 50 you give away, you'll probably end up with 25 customers for more birds. Because the beauty of the pastured chicken is the difference between that product and what comes out of Kroger's or Albertsons or Costco is so dramatic to people. The taste, the flavor, the plumpness, the juiciness, the... The cleanness of the product, when you look at it, when you smell it, when you, when you take raw chicken out of a package that says Purdue or Tyson on it, the first thing you get is stink. It stinks. I defy anybody to open up a package of, of commercially produced chicken from a supermarket, stick their nose over there and inhale and say it doesn't stink. You've either got a cold or you, or in, you don't smell very well. Maybe you smoke. I don't know. But it stinks. So I think that the, the difference there, and that's why he's always recommended that. And it's it's a very easy system to learn. Everything you need to know, the inputs, the management technique, is all known. You can buy a book and learn how to do it in a week. You're not going to be good at it, but you'll know what to do. 
You can, it, you can invest a, a pretty small amount of money and get it going. Pork, I think, is a little bit more involved, but it could be inherently dangerous if you don't know what you're doing to all the pigs, by the way. But both of those can be a core. And I think that is actually a good dual core. Um, there's a, a farm I used to buy from up in Arkansas, JB Farms. They don't have that much land. I think it's 20 acres or so. And uh, they were there, that was their core, poultry and pork. And they sold pigs as a half a pig or a whole pig. And it went to the, you basically bought it, and it went to the slaughter facility, and you pay the slaughter facility, and you pick it up. They're selling you a live animal, and then you're paying for it to be processed. It worked out very well for them. And I, I never actually bought a pig from them because we moved. And when I was like, yeah, I'd like to get one of those, they're like, we can get one next year. And I'm like, well, I'm moving, so I don't think I need a pig in Arkansas from, from Texas. But that, and, and they are students of Salatin. They are doing exactly what Joel teaches in his books with their pigs and their chickens in a, in a leader follower system. And they do other things, they do rabbits and some other stuff, but that's their, that's the core. And their, their, their best business, It's people that come to the farm and buy 10, 20 chickens at a time. Or people that come to the farm, see it, pick out a pig, pig goes to the processor, pick it up. That's their core business in dollars. But do you know where their customers come from? The crappy, shitty, and it is a crappy, shitty farmer's market in Hot Springs. It's a terrible farmer's market. I don't know what they could do to change that, but it's, it's not very good. But they're the only people there in that business. And they sell their birds frozen there. You know, people buy one, two of them. But that makes the initial connection. And it's like, hey, you come on out to the farm, and instead of selling you frozen birds, we can sell you fresh birds. You can take them home. You can part them out yourself. We have rabbits there, too, by the way. We can't sell those to the farmer. So the connection is the farmer's market. The initial touch of the customer, the first transaction, turns into the long-term relationship with a pork and poultry core. The next business I think that people really, it's specialized. It takes some courage in some ways to do. It's not for everybody, but honey. And I don't even say it's honey. I'm going to actually change it right now. I'm going to change the word honey to bees. Um, with bees, you're selling honey, you're selling wax, you're selling packages. If you learn how to build hives, you can sell hives and hive products. Uh, you can do workshops. You can teach people. You can do pollination services. A lot of people would say that's not really permaculture. And I guess if you're going out and putting your, your, your bees over GMO cotton, it's not. But there's probably a lot of organic producers out there that need bees. And it's not that horrible for once a year for beehives to be moved, the bees to work a field, and for the bees to come back to another place. It's not, it's not the most awful thing in the world for them to do. It really isn't. And you don't have to do that. That's just one way that it can be done. And bees are basically a replication machine. A good beekeeper should be able to turn one hive into two hives every year. Every year. At a minimum. So 10 hives become 20. 20 hives become 40. And if you even did it for two seasons before you had 40 hives... 40 hives, stay 40 hives, and make 40 packages of bees or nukes to sell off. Thousands of dollars in business. Plus wax. Plus pollen. I had Michael Jordan on, so I'm not going to go much longer. All these different income units, they come just off of being a beekeeper. 
Um, I think, I've said this, I'm trying to get Jason, my bee mentor, to do this, that you could build a business, a book of business with bees the way that a pool cleaner builds a book of business with pools. Only it'd be a hell of a lot more fun and a hell of a lot less competition. I would say, like, this is what a hive costs, and I'd make a little bit of money off that. So a hive set up on your property is X. I recommend you buy at least two. You're probably in it for a thousand bucks at that time. You probably are. I mean, it just it costs money to do. But you know, these two hives should produce a five gallon bucket or more of honey after their second year, every year. So here's the deal: every two weeks, every month, whatever the frequency is that you feel you need to take care of the bees, I come out to your property and I do everything. You pay me a fee. It's X. Fill in the blank. And at each, you know, and when it's time to, to divide the hives, I divide the hives to help them prevent from swarming. You might even have something like, I'll replace bees that do swarm off because they're under my care. Because you're producing bees anyway. And, you know, each season you're dividing a hive. You're taking a nuke out of the hive. And that's your seed stock to establish new places that you're selling it into. Or you just put them somewhere in the interim until you have a place for them to go. And the rule with bees is you either move them two feet or two miles and you do nothing in between. And I think that's that's a viable business because there's plenty of people that go, yeah, I'd like bees. I'll bet you, I'll bet you, I could get ten customers within ten miles of my home in ten weeks, one customer a week, without even trying that hard, just by talking to people around here. Because people have a big enough piece of property around here where they can envision, okay, the bees will be over there out of everybody's hair. And they really don't hurt anything. We have bees flying all around here. The only person that's been stung is me. One, because I got too cocky. I had bees landed on me and stuff around the hive and all, and they're all chill, and Jason's bees are all chill, and one of them got stuck in the pond. So I'm like, oh, it's my bee drowning this time. I should save it. And I stuck my hand in there, and it bit me. It stung me and died. I'm like, okay, that was dumb. It was under stress. Of course it stung me. And the other time I got stung, I was working behind the hive in shorts, and I was replacing the, the, the feeders and, you know, didn't wear pants and, and, and basically brushed a bee that was probably an old dying guard bee uh, across my leg, and it stung me. It was no big deal. But that was, like, directly me choosing to interact with the bees. Like, we have them fly all around here. They're around the, the water spigot, and you go turn the water spigot on, they buzz around, and they go back to it because they want water. Bees are not some horrific thing that goes out to jack with you. And the ones that are away from the hive, they're worker bees. They have a life in front of them in a few weeks. It's the old nasty guard bees that are ready to die in a week or two. They're the ones. They have nothing to lose. They'll sting you. The guys that fly around, they don't want to bother you. So with a little bit of education, and, and see the beauty of this is then you end up with a business that's got re recurrent revenue. And you might even make an arrangement with, okay, this is what I charge to take care of the bees. You get 70% of the honey, and the other 30% I take Or you can buy it from me. And the way you buy it from me is you just pay me more every week. It's up to you. So now I'll take the honey and I'll sell it in another channel. Or I'll get more money and basically I've sold it to you without ever actually having to take it and sell it anywhere. And I'll probably sell it to you for the same price I would sell it somewhere else. That's how much I'll increase my maintenance fee if you want to keep 100% of the honey. And most people might say, like, uh, dude, uh, can you cut me a little bit better of a deal if you get 50% of the honey? Because I don't know what I'm going to do with 10 gallons of honey every year. I'm just saying. A lot of people want bees because it's cool. They want to have bees. So there's an opportunity there. Design, small to large. 
I can't tell you what we're charging for the design project we're working on in Arkansas, but it's a very large project and it wasn't cheap. I'll leave it at that. But you could be designing backyards. This person that challenged me that, that created today's show, and thank you, by the way, because it created a very interesting show, um, said, do you think you can really make money designing projects in suburbia? Isn't that all the people that have HOAs? Well, I've owned three homes in suburbia, and none of them were in HOAs. And I would have been all over it, especially back before I knew how to do this. I mean, my property in Pennsylvania, if I knew what I was doing, could have been unbelievable. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I knew how to garden back then. I mean, this is 2001 we're talking about now, long time ago. And if somebody had come to me and shown me pictures of what a well-designed permaculture property looks like, you know, and this was back when I was in corporate America making good money, and I said, you know what, we'll transform this property for $10,000. I would have said, I don't know. Well, what if we do it this way? And you gave me some kind of transitional period where you can prove yourself first? Yeah. Some kind of payment program, owner financing, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, we would have had that done. We would have made the investment. And and, and maybe it wouldn't have been a $10,000 design. Maybe it would have been a $1,000 design. Here, here's a, here's here's 500 bucks, and this is based on you having a $500 budget with the plant. Do it yourself. And I might have said, how much for you to do this? Because I don't, I don't have time to do this. I have to go to Boston. Uh, $2,500. $2,500, I'll just do it. I'll just do it. I paid more for that to put my driveway in there and have it. Actually, it was already put in just to have it blacktopped. I'll just do it. Get it done. That doesn't mean every person you talk to is going to do that, but how many do you need to build a core book? Of, and the more you do, the more credibility you have. So design small, larger work. Uh, teaching, I think, is great. Focus on local, though, initially, anyway, for the good teacher. I'll leave it at that for now. And edutainment. What's edutainment? It's what you're listening to right now. Podcasting is one form of edutainment. Um, I can see if somebody really was good at video work and really did a daily five minutes of permaculture on their own property and maybe got a couple other properties around them that they could do stuff on, and really did it well, that they could develop an entire business doing nothing but that on YouTube. Um, the King of Randoms, the guy I featured some of his videos on today, I was watching a video today where he was making these little fire starters. Now, this is not permaculture, but it sort of is because it's recycling uh, out of a basically a beer can, and the cardboard box of the beer can came in and, and old candles. But he was doing it with Mike's Hard Lemonade, and they called it a Mike hack instead of a life hack. All right, a Mike hack, and Mike's Lemonade has reached out to him, and so you think he's doing that for free? You don't think so? Mike's Lemonade would love to have big viral penetration online. Can't figure out how to do it. If you can do this with permaculture, everybody that sells everything from a rake and a hoe to a pack of seeds to a tree wants to work with you, and that's how you get into major markets with edutainment. So that's another way to do it. So. The show's going long today because whenever I talk about business, I, I want to teach this so bad to folks. I want people to learn. I want people to do. So I'm going to go a little faster in my last segments here, but I want to end with understanding reality. The first part of understanding reality, everything will cost more and take longer than you will estimate. If you think it's going to take $1,000 to do something, it's probably going to take $1,500 to $2,000. If you think it's going to take a week, it's probably going to take three. The longer you do it, the closer you'll get in your estimates. I'm a damn good estimator, but I used to do it for a living. Right? I mean, when I was in sales, I was estimating projects all the time. Walk in, we want to put in X number of cable drops, we want to do this, we want to do that, and I can look at it and go, 
$80,000 off the top of my head. I would never tell a customer that because it could be wrong, but I'd be thinking 80 grand. I'd go back and do what they call in the business a takeoff, an estimate, and, and come back to the customer with $81,500. Not bad for off the top of your head. Um, but even me, when I started doing this, I'm like, ah, oh, I can put that in in a couple days. Two weeks later, I'm tired, and, and I, I'm distracted by five other things that need to be done, and it's still not done. And I look at someone and go, yeah, that's going to be about $100 of materials. $250 later, it's finally done. And again, I, I'm better at it now. It's a new world for me. But it, it's, it's going to cost more, and it's going to take longer, and you need to build buffer in for yourself. Next reality, you will fail before you succeed. You might fail completely, or you might fail partially, but you're going to have failures before you have success. Your failures lead to your successes. That doesn't mean you just accept failure. Yeah, I failed again. That's great. No, but it does mean that you accept that they're there, and every one of them should teach you something. The next thing is it's damn hard, and then it's simply hard work. So I think most people don't understand that, and they think hard work equals it being hard, and that's no, no, no. Hard work means it's just physically exhausting, long hours, whatever. Hard work. When you get to where it's hard work, you've gotten to where it's easy. The startup period is damn hard. It's finding a market. It's figuring out what your core is. It's making mistakes. It's underestimating your expenses. It's losing some money. It's, it's having a complete failure of a product that you thought was going to be your core and ending up with something else. That's damn hard. Then it becomes hard work. When it becomes hard work, you're happy. I should say when it comes just hard work, you're happy. Uh, and then there's something you need to understand. It helps to have help. But generally, you're never going to have anybody that wants to help that's as good as you are at what they're doing. And then I want to tell you something. Go big or go small, but go something. you got to do something. If you don't do something, it ain't going to work. And I think that understanding between big and small and the, the, the guy that kind of precipitated this with the 1,000 acres, if I want to sit back as an investor the way that we're sort of kind of trying to do with Permanent Ethos and our partners Charlie and Kevin with their farm in West Virginia, you, you kind of, there's a scale to where you can sit back as an investor and make any money anytime soon um, is it, pretty big. Yeah, you're looking at a multi-hundred acre property. If you don't want to do the work and you want to hire a head farmer and you want to do this, like, this is my land and I'm an investor, you, you probably got to finance it. you got to borrow money to create deductions from the government where otherwise it would not be a deduction. And you got to go big. you got to scale it hard. And you got to buy the right land. It's got to be easy to work. It's got to be easy to maintain. It's going to take a front-end load that's pretty heavy before you get into a low input cost. It's got some time behind it before that happens. So these businesses I gave you today, they all involve you doing, not getting someone else to do it. They're not large-scale businesses initially. And you have to scale very slowly. When you start adding people, people are the most screwed up component you'll ever add to your business. If I put a chicken into a business, I know what the chicken does. And I know if I put certain boundaries and certain restrictions on that chicken, how that chicken will behave. I know how much they cost me. I know what they're going to eat. I know what they're going to poop. I know everything that chicken's going to do. You know what that chicken's not going to do? He's not going to freak out and have a midlife crisis. He's not going to not come today because his kid has a baseball game. Okay? He's not going to ask for a vacation. He's not going to cost me health insurance. And if he dies, I don't give a shit, I get a new chicken. Trees, same way. Ducks, geese, pigs, hogs, 
Easy. People are complicated. So while it helps to have help, you have to understand there's a certain scale you have to reach before you can afford to have help. On a regular basis, it's paid as an employee. And it's probably bigger than you think it is. Next thing. Reality. Four things you must be to be a success. There's a lot more, but these four are the most important ones I can give you in a way that you'll understand if you're new to business. One, you must be marketable. And I'm going to give you an, an explanation of marketable today that is so simple that you have to understand it. Marketable means your story. People don't just buy a duck egg from us because it's a duck egg. They buy a nine-mile farm duck egg. They buy it from a flock of ducks that's being raised on YouTube. They buy it from a flock of ducks being raised on YouTube, being taken care of by Max and Charlie, our two dogs, overseen by Jack and Dorothy. And they know Jack is a podcaster and Dorothy is a nurse. And they know that we're local. And they know that they can come here. They know our story. They know that we're doing other things. But they know that we have other plans. They can see our animals. They can touch our animals. They can pet our animals. They know if they come here, I will snatch one of them up and let their little kids pet them if they want to. And they know if the kids are afraid of them, I'll put them back down. I won't force it on the kid. They know our story. So it's marketability is about your story. The next is referable. You have to be referable. That means your story has to be so simple to understand and so compelling that people will tell it for you. So when someone comes here and their kid pets a duck, when they go see their Aunt Sue, they say, Hey, Susie pet a duck. Where at? Well, we got our eggs. Here's an egg. So referability is about the ability of your story to be retold. Marketability is your story. And this applies, I don't care what it is, Apple. Apple's marketed on a story of Steve Jobs and college. And sure, people just go buy an Apple today, but the stories would sold the product. And hey, when they let go of the story for a while, their stock price and their sales went to shit. The story is what makes it marketable, and the retelling of the story is what makes it referable. It also needs to be repeatable. You have to have customers that come back for more. You have to. In a small business, you can't afford to constantly be acquiring new customers. Even if it doesn't cost you money, if there's a lot of word of mouth, every new customer wants to hear the story again. Every new customer needs a certain level of education. At least in these types of businesses. Now, you can automate a lot of things. If you can create a business where people go online and they get their own education and their own story from video and stuff like that, it's very powerful. But if you're selling direct-to-consumer, you want something that's repeatable. You want the customer coming back over and over again, whether it's a once-a-year fee or a once-a-week purchase. I don't care what it is, but if no customer ever returns... It's a tough business. It's not an impossible business. Some businesses just kind of are that way. But no business is that way on purpose. No business wants to be that way and adaptable. Your business has got to be adaptable. You have to develop what your market craves. If you have everybody asking you for something, you better figure out how to give it to them. If you have everybody complaining about something, you better fix it. If nobody's buying nothing, you better figure out something somebody will buy. you got to be adaptable. You make your business marketable, referable, repeatable, and adaptable, and you don't succeed. You're selling black and white TVs or some shit, right? And then it's not marketable, it's not referable, it's not repeatable, and it's not adaptable. But if you can tell your story, get other people to tell your story, get customers who already came to come back for more and develop what your market craves, and you can't make a business successful, I don't even understand what to tell you next. 
That's actually everything you need to know about building any business ever right there in four words. Marketable, referable, repeatable, adaptable. Done. A lot of hard work goes with it, but those are your, your key tenets. And finally, guys, listen to me. I want you guys to build businesses. I don't care if it's in permaculture. I don't care if it's making rocket cars. I don't give a shit what it is. I want businesses for people because businesses equal liberty. And you will never have liberty, full liberty, as long as somebody else decides when you take a vacation. You will never have full liberty if somebody decides when you get to go home, other than you. You will never have full liberty when, when people decide how long you get to take for lunch. You will never have full liberty when, when somebody quits the break you're supposed to get, you don't get that anymore. You will never have full liberty if somebody else can alter your life in a millisecond by issuing you these words, I'm sorry you're fired. I'm sorry you're laid off. I'm sorry we're downsizing. I've been through some of those. They suck. I know this. I won't fire me. So I want you guys to do this, and not necessarily permaculture, but I want you, like if you listen today and you're not into permaculture and you didn't learn how to run a business, you didn't listen. You're too focused on apples and pigs. I don't care what the product is. This is universal. This is, this is what I know more than anything that I teach you is business. But here's the reality. There is no guarantee of success if you try no matter what you do no matter how hard you try no matter how much you took to heart what I said today no matter how much you learn yourself just because you try there is no guarantee of success but there is a guarantee of uh, there is a guaranteed failure if you don't try you absolutely will not build a business if you don't try That's just, that's just as, as real and concrete as I can make it for you. You can dream about it or you can figure out how to do it. You can ease into it like a recent guest that we had on. Full-time job, heading for retirement in five years, scaling things in. I mean, you know, like the, a nursery business would be perfect for that. Plant a hundred different varieties of trees. Plums, apples, pears, peaches, whatever. Find the best. And all your stock for grafting sitting there with food that you can also sell for a surplus, but your primary business might be the propagation of those varieties. It's just one example of how you could do it. If you try that, you still might fail. You might not be good at it. You might pick the wrong stuff. You might not care enough in the end. Or you might succeed. See, if you try, there's an opportunity to succeed. If you don't try, there's only the opportunity to fail, to never know what might have been. And it's been said many times, but it's worth repeating right now. In the end, people seldom regret so much what they have done, but what they haven't done. If you want liberty, and you want freedom, and you want independence, claim it and take it. And understand, you will never truly understand. You'll never truly understand just how insidious something that's so accepted by people as taxation is until you're paying somebody else's salary. Then you'll understand. And it will change your paradigm. You want to save this nation? You want to save this nation from politicians and corruptions? You want to save this nation from being a, a nation of sheep that are easily led, that vote for who will ever give them more? Turn this into a nation of entrepreneurs. The grasshopper is not an entrepreneur. 
the ant is. Be an ant, not a grasshopper. And with that, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.